I invite you to take your Bibles now and then and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, actually to chapter 9, because the last time we um, looked at this book, we were at the end of chapter 9. We didn't get to finish it, but so I want to do that this morning. Uh, Paul is responding to some of the concerns that were voiced by the Corinthians, the Christians at Corinth. He was talking about meats that were offered to idols and so on and how we should be careful uh, not to um, use the rights we have in a way that abuses a, uh, uh, what he calls a weaker brother or sister. But the law of love should rule in our lives. Just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean we have to do it, especially if it is going to adversely affect someone else. By the way, talking about meats and so on, you know, the halal meat and we've been talking about, it's becoming a big thing in England. Uh, How many of you get uh, the newsletters from Barnabas from, from them, right? He's fighting that right now. It's a big issue over there, tremendous issue. Is going to come here as well. Actually, it's already here. Only thing we ain't doing nothing about it. You see, you're just going to accept it. No boy, you know, that's all. Be so nice people, you know. We don't cause trouble. You see, but there's a big struggle over there because the meat is being offered all over the place, but no one is saying that it is halal meat. You see, that's the problem, and that's the kind of thing that. Paul was addressing here, if you go to home, you don't know it's meat off a dial, eat the thing, man. If you like the steak, eat it. You know, it's good. However, if you do find out that it is and a weaker brother is offended, then you shouldn't do it. That's the law of love. Now, he ends that passage, that whole section, with these verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. This is what he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But... One received the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Now, he's in no way implying that only one Christian is going to run the race. I mean, win a a prize. He's not implying that at all. He's just trying to lay a principle. You run to win a prize. Not everybody wins. Run in such a way. That's the focus. Run in the right way. He's going to tell you the right way. Run in such a way that you win. Everyone who competes in the games, he's thinking about the games back then that we now call Olympic Games, I imagine. Anyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are imperishable. He's emphasizing the the fact that our activities for Christ impact eternity. While these other races and these other things are only for now. And we must, live, we must realize that. We're not living for now. We're living for then. We live today in the light of that day. We must remember that. That's what he's getting across here. Therefore, I, I run. He's applying it to himself now. In such a way as not with a, without aim. He's got a purpose. He's got a goal. He's, I box in such a way as not beating the air. Not just shadow boxing. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now many look at this and say that means that you could lose, you 
your salvation. But the context is very clear. He's not talking about salvation. The only way you could get in this race is if you're saved. All right? The only way you could get in this race is if you're saved. He's talking about rewards. All right? So I don't even want to, I was going to say waste time, but that's, that's too harsh a term. If you just read the text, the context, you wouldn't have these kind of questions, you see? You have to be saved in order to get in this race. Now, I just want to put the principle here because I don't want to spend too much time on this today, although it deserves more time, because I want to get into chapter 10. What he's saying here, that as in a sports competition in which all participants have the same advantages, rules and opportunity to win, if they are not qualified due to lack of commitment to complete fairly, so it is in the Christian life race. Everyone has the same opportunities. Everyone can prepare for it. In the, everyone has the same rules to follow. The only thing you have to be careful is not to be disqualified because you don't keep the rules. That's the principles. It applies also to the Christian life. That's what he's saying. It applies to the Christian life. We will win if we are not disqualified, and we'd only be disqualified what? If we disobey the rules. So you see, as a Christian right now, when you sin because things are tough, there's no use you saying God understands and think he's going to give you a prize at the end. You've been disqualified for whatever reason. If you lie, you've been disqualified. You are being disqualified. If you continue to steal, you, you, you're disqualified. You cannot win the race, the Christian life race, if you disobey the rules. That's what Paul is saying. And we could argue, we could plead all kinds of things, but when we stand on that beamer to get the prize, many will not get it because they're being disqualified. And some at the very end. Paul then moves on now to give a real-life historical illustration of what he's just said. I want you to see how this chapter, chapter 9, connects to chapter 10. Because, of course, there's no chapters in the original. But sometimes we put the chapters here and we lose the sense of the passage. And so I want you to see now, in chapter 10, verse 1, for I do not want you to be unaware. King James would say something like ignorant. I do not want you to be without information in the context concerning the history of God's people. That's the context. I do not want you to be unaware of history. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and notice the term now, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were all drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That's a beautiful passage filled with typology. We come on back to this passage next week because it has so much here. But I don't want us to lose the emphasis on history. You see? 
So we're coming back to the meanings of all, this, all of these things, the spiritual food, the spiritual drink, the rock, which was Christ, following them and all of that. We'll come back to that again. But now, if you look at this text, what he's saying is here, that they all shared the same blessing and opportunity to enter the promised land. That's what he's saying. All had the same opportunity. All had the same blessing. They all had chance, we would say, to enter the promised land. Point one. Verse five. Nevertheless, watch these neverthelesses. These buts. Nevertheless, with most of them, notice, not all of them, right? With most of them, I think again, James said, with some of them. With most of them, God was not well pleased. For they, who were the they? The most, not the all. The some, not the all. For they were laid low in the wilderness. In other words, what he's saying here is, they, most of them, were disqualified. They all started off with the same opportunity to go. But most of them were disqualified. Even Moses, the coach. And he was disqualified right at the finish line. That's why Paul said, after having done all, telling everybody how to do it, I'm disqualified myself. He said, I'm not going to do that. Therefore, I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to discipline myself to be sure that I keep these rules. Now let's go on, verse 6. Now these things happened as examples. What things? The things he listed about the murmuring, about the lusting and all that. We're coming back to them. Don't think I forgot. I'm leaving them out. We come back next week. That means I can see most of you all next week. Give me that one. Now, these things happened as examples for us. You see that? Hundreds of years now, later, the apostle says those things that happened in the wilderness happened as examples for us. Why? So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Now, he's going to list some things. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. People sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, that doesn't mean they were hopscotching and doing things now. This sat down to play has to do with pagan worship, immorality, and all that kind of stuff. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Now let us, nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did. And were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now he enumerates the things that happened to God's people in the wilderness. 
as being warnings for us not to do the same thing. Examples to us. And listen to the next verse. Verse 11. Now, notice it's repeated. And I want you to understand, this is the word of God we're reading. This is God speaking to us when I read the text. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. In other words, through, we are at that point now where God has been working things out for our good, giving us examples and everything else, and now we're right at the apex of what he is doing. We should be able to understand it. That's why he said, I don't want you to be aware. I don't want you to be ignorant of what happened to my people in the wilderness. Because it happened for me to teach you a lesson today. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. talking to the strong Christian who thinks he's strong. You start out well. Boy, when you cross that Red Sea, you're the first one over on that other side and you're ready to go. Let's go! But his caucus was left in the wilderness. No temptation has taken you. The temptation came in the wilderness of all places. But such as is common to man. What are you saying? Listen, everything you Corinthians are going through right now, your ancestors already went through. And if you understand what happened to them, you could get through this. The only way you won't get through this is if you, are, you remain ignorant of what happened to them. Or if you became aware of it, you disregard it. God is faithful. He showed his faithfulness all through the wilderness. Give him shoes and wear out. Food you can't get rid of. I mean, he gave him everything. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. So that you will be able to endure it. If they had just listened to God and his command through his servants, all of them would have gotten into the land. But they didn't. Because they disobeyed the rules that he laid down. Only two. Only two. Talk about a remnant. That's why I stop looking for crowds all the time to serve Jesus Christ. You don't get it. Oh, you might get it to start off the gate with. But when you, start, when you realize you've got to live a disciplined life, you've got to live a holy life. That's why I will call my sermon next week a history lesson in holiness. Because that's what God is doing here. Teaching holiness through the life of his people in the wilderness. You see, you start off, well, man, hey, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to the promised land. Man, I'm so happy. 
But boy, that means I got to stop stealing. I got to stop lying. I got to stop being so. Gr- I got to. I, I got to stop talking about people. I got to stop backbiting. I got to stop being so grabalicious. I got to stop being so materialistic. You mean? You mean I got to stop worshiping, even though He tells I need to worship? That's why you know talking about the Lord's Supper. This is one lesson we can get back to later on. Some people who stay away the church, I could break bread on the beach or on the boat or where I am and I'm okay. That's not true. That's just another hypocritical way of disobeying God's command to get together with his people. The Lord's Supper was given primarily for a fellowship of God's people. We can see that when we come to chapter 11. You see? But if you don't understand what God did in the past, you're going to repeat the same sin. Now, that's all in the doctrine. Because I want to get to this principle. The Old Testament, listen carefully. The Old Testament is human history, divinely designed to teach us how to live holy lives. Especially in the wilderness. That's the first principle here. Now that means we need to know what? The Old Testament. Now, I just don't mean what book comes after another book. But I mean what the book teaches. Why was Genesis written? Why was Exodus written? Why was Why? Why? What is God teaching me in here? According to this text, God has written history for us to make us holy, to make us to know how to run the life race that we could win a prize. God uses the experiences of his people of yesterday to mature his people of today. In other words, church history is one of God's tools for discipleship. You ever thought of that? According to this text, that's right. According to this text, that's right. Church history, I mean history of God's people, is a tool for discipleship. To make us to know how to follow Christ. That's why he says, do not be unaware. Don't be ignorant of church history. Especially in the Old Testament. How many of us have already been disqualified because we don't know the rules? Because we don't know the New Old Testament. That's the word. Now, I want to give a current relevant Application, And I want to do this because it's current. It's relevant. Here's a derived current application. The Protestant Reformation teaches us the necessity to both know and defend the truth of the Word of God. And I believe that one of the reasons we don't know the word or appreciate the word as we should or able to defend it as we should because we don't know the history of God's people when it comes to the Reformation. Do you realize if it wasn't for the Reformation, none of you would be here today? Do you know that? None of you. I might have been here with my robe on. None of you would have been here. 
But on October the 31st, 1517, 493 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther, then a Catholic priest, not a Roman Catholic priest, the Roman Catholic Church did not come into existence until after the Reformation. Up to that point, it was known simply as the Catholic Church, the Church Universal, which is true of all of us who know Christ. He posted what was called his 95 Theses on the door of the Catholic Church at Wittenberg. In other words, he made a challenge to the authority of the Church at that time concerning certain things that were taught. For him, what prompted it, and God always seems to use something to get his chosen people to move, especially those who want to move. Do you know that God has chosen people to do things, but they don't do it? They don't want to do it, and sometimes God had to kick them in the pants a little harder. That's what he did in Martin Luther. That issue for Martin Luther was the sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church. They started, and I'm going to simplify this, to say that you could get into heaven for a price. Now, that's not a criticism. That's history. All right? That's history. You could read the history in Protestant history books as well as Roman Catholic history books. A little different twist, but you could read it. When Martin Luther asked why he challenged a church like this, he said he was bound by scripture and reason. He was bound by scripture and reason. In other words, the way he understood the scripture. Luther was condemned as a heretic and sentenced to die. Now before him there were others. He was not the may he was the one that we focus on, but he was not really the only one who brought about what we call the Protestant Reformation. There's Wycliffe before him. Wycliffe who wanted the Bible to be placed in the hands of the people, and so he wrote it out by hand. And his followers, the Lollards, they call them, they started to write it out as well. And today we have more handwritten Bibles in existence than any other manuscript. It's amazing. It's still in existence. Now you've got to pay a lot of money for it, but it's still in existence. In fact, $100,000. No, not $100,000. $100 million. Um, mine is on the way. Brad, Brad's, that's Brad's present for me. Uh, one of those things. Then there was John Huss following in the footsteps of Wycliffe. Same thing. The word of God should be in the hands of the people. The church of the time say, no way. You take away my power to do that. No way. So John Huss was burned at the stake. And one of the reasons why you have the Bible in your hand today is because John Huss was burned at the stake. He had one more I want to mention, William Tyndale. He was also burned at the stake. Why? So you could have the Bible in your own language. That history teaches us that if we really believe that the Bible is the word of God, we should be willing to stand up for it even to the point of death. But you see, so many people are unaware of the Reformation. 
They don't have any concerns about how the Bible came to them. They don't regard the Bible as something that caused men their lives. Luther was condemned as a heretic and he was sentenced to die. In fact, it's like today. The Muslims, anybody could kill you. That's what the king said. King and church are working together then. Anybody could kill Martin Luther. But of course, God preserved him. And we'll tell the story about that some other time. You need to know. That's what this text says. You don't have to remain ignorant of how God worked in the lives of his people. But he escaped, and the partisan reformation spread. Now, of course, the Catholics understand this as a rebellion that causes major division. There were two major divisions in the Roman Catholic. But again, up to, up to 1500s, the church was recognized as a Catholic church. After the partisan is known as the Roman Catholic. And I'll explain that later on. The first one was the Orthodox. We call them Greek Orthodox. Today was not only Greek, it was Coptic, it was others as well. They broke. They didn't want the authority of the Pope. And that's why they have what? Patriarchs who lead the church. Then the next major one was in 1517 with uh, what we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, for Protestants, now that's us, that's you, whether you know it or not, you're a protester. You didn't give yourself that name. In fact, that name wasn't given until around 1527 at a, one of these little gatherings. And that's when also the Roman was attached to the Catholic Church. You were looked at one who protested the authority of the Pope and others we're going to look at right now. Now, for Protestants, though, the Reformation was the reforming of the true church, getting back to the gospel. That's what they looked at, getting back to the word of God. They said the established church was trying to keep the word away, and they were distorting the, church, the, the, the word of God. They were abusing the word of God. It wasn't getting into the hands of the people. If you did get the Bible and you were caught with it, you could be killed. Now, there were a lot of issues involved, but the two major ones, according to most historians, I believe there are three, and I'll tell you about that in a moment, but there were three major issues. And I want you to know this because I believe I'm applying Scripture. God says that he teaches us through the life of his people. That's what we're doing, applying it. The first issue with Martin Luther was authority. Where do we go for truth? Uh, I'm trying to simplify it here. I'm trying to take out the theological aspects of it. Where do we go for truth? The institutionalized church at that time says you go to both scripture and tradition. 
Scripture to them was given by the church, they say. The church produced the Bible. The Bible didn't produce the church. That's the position. Therefore, it was written tradition. But there is also unwritten tradition. That's tradition with a capital T. And they gave them the same authority. And so, the church is represented by the Pope and the congregation of bishops could interpret both written and unwritten tradition infallibly. Being protect, protected, they claim, by the Holy Spirit. In other words, their interpretation was Holy Spirit-led. That was their position. However, as far as the Protestants were concerned, Martin Luther, that represented an abuse of authority. An abuse of authority. Martin Luther says, while you do have authority, you do not have absolute authority. When it came to the word of God. That's why he wanted to get it into the hands of the people. You see, the reason why the institutionalized church didn't want it to get in the hands of the people, because then they could interpret the scriptures themselves. And so the authority to interpret now is not only here in the church. It's now you've got right in the one pope. This is one of the, I can bring it up in a moment. This is one of the opposition uh, statements that the church brought up. He said, we only have one church now, but if you give the Bible to everybody, you can have millions of popes. Because everybody will interpret themselves. And you know something? That's true. They had a point there. But we're coming back with that in a moment. Well, not in a moment, later on sometime. Um, so the Protestant says, while tradition with a small t was very important and must be respected, it did not share equal authority with Scripture. But rather, it served Scripture. In other words, Scripture had the authority. It had some good things to say, but it didn't have the authority of the written word, is what Protestants were saying. Everything, including unwritten tradition, the councils, and the Pope, <clears throat> Martin Luther was teaching, had to be tested by and submitted to the scriptures. That's what he's saying. In other words, scripture was the final authority. Protestants repositioned both the church and tradition on the scripture. The institutionalized church put the church, ab the, 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 the church above scripture and tradition. You understand? Protestants reversed it. And so that's why... The battle cry of the reformers was sola scriptura. That's the Latin term. Scriptures alone. That means as far as authority. In this case, now it's used in different ways. But in this case it means scripture alone has authority over the faith and practice of the believer. And it was the only infallible source from God. The only infallible source was the written word of God, not tradition. Unwritten. Understand? That was the first one. But let me back up. The Bible that you have in your hand today is because of that position that was taken in 1517. Men died so you could have the Bible to read in your own language. 
What does that lesson teach us? What is the lesson, the reformation concerning the f- source of authority? What does it teach us? It should teach us that at all costs we should stand for the word of God. Not the word of man, no, what, no matter what kind of title he or she bears. We should be willing to stand for the truth of the word of God. We should be ready to give an answer. But how many of us are? How many of you treat the Bible just like any other piece of book, literature? Do you know what they used to burn us at the stake with? Well, you know you had all the sticks and everything, but you had to kindle it. Do you know what they used to kindle the wood to burn us? The Bible. The written Wycliffe Bible, they gathered as much of them they could find. And they use it to kindle the fire that burned us to the stake. That's the church did it. Church. Does history tell us anything about the church and what it can do? How far it can go from the word of God if we are not alert? That's why it amazes me how people go from one church to another church today. They would go to another church because they get better pews or better carpets or better looking preacher. Now, I don't know why they go anywhere else to come here. But. <laughs> or anything else, or they preach too long. But you would find hardly anyone go to another church because of doctrine. Because they're concerned about what they're saying about salvation. What they're concerning about holiness of life. Doctrine is never brought in. It's only what I like or don't like. That's not the lesson, the teaching of the Reformation. You could be disqualified for that kind of a response. But another major concern for Luther in 1517... Caused them to go and observe the 31st and 9, those nail those 95 theses to the door was justification. This question asks, how is a person made right with God? How is a person made right with God? Now, it wasn't talking necessarily about the meaning or the nature of justification, but how it is brought about, the cause of it, the instrumental cause of it from a human point of view. The church at that time believed that justification was a process brought about by the individual's cooperation with God through their faith and works. In other words, it was based on works. And that's what the sacraments were. It's a means of acquiring grace. When you came to the Lord's table, you'd not only remember the Lord, you received the Lord. That gave you a measure of grace to live a better Christian life. When you go to the Mass, you receive a little, you infuse, that gives you a little better way of living righteously. And that's how you, and the more you keep the sacraments, the more grace you're giving to please God. That's why one, that's why it's looked upon in, in the church that if you miss the Mass, that's a mortal sin. You see? 
So really, no Catholic, according to that teaching, can know that they're really justified until after salvation. No way of knowing it, because it isn't finished on earth. It depends on how faithful you've been keeping the rules of the church, not the Bible, the church. In other words, people were not justified, they were being justified. And they could never really know that they were eternally secured. Never. For the most, the best that they could hope for was that they died and spent a certain amount of time, usually very extended, in a place called purgatory. Having their venial sins that are not so bad, by the way, but they got to be purged through a painful process of cleansing. That's why Martin Luther was so angry when they would come and try to sell indulgences so you could get out a little quicker. They would even tell you how long. 150 million years, five months and two days for $50. That's just an illustration. Now, we look at that and we smile. But listen, when we think that we could gain salvation by works, we're doing the same thing. It's just how much works. How much works. Once they're released from purgatory, they would move on into heaven. One Roman Catholic writer put it this way. Purgatory is the time and place to wash before you go to dinner. They see it as a cleansing preparation. However, the Protestants believe. Now, I'm not doing this to criticize, mind you. This is all historical. You could read this in the history books. I'm doing this because there's an application here from this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. God teaches us through his people how to live holy lives, how to keep our lives pure so we could win the prize. See? But the Protestants, Martin Luther, believed that this was a serious distortion of the gospel message. And they believe it's similar to the Galatian era where the, where, the, where, the, where the Judaizers were saying that you had to be circumcised and so on to become a Christian. Adam works. That's what they saw the church doing. In other words, they were teaching that works were necessary for salvation along with faith. And that's a teaching on the position of the Roman Catholic Church. And so to the Protestants, this distortion arose in the Middle Ages with the rise of the sacramental system, masses, confession, baptism. I watched a Roman Catholic program last night. And again, this is for history I'm trying to learn. And these ladies were telling us how you're supposed to live and what happens through the sacraments and how wonderful and beautiful they are. And I never knew this one until last night, listening to that program. The priest. He said, the priest is not... A regular man. He says, when they go into the priest, this is why the priestly order is a sacrament, by the way. When a man becomes a priest, he becomes a different person. He has now the authority to forgive sins on the behalf of Christ. He says, now, it's Jesus who forgives it, but he's able to do it. But he's not qualified to do it or enabled to do it until he becomes a priest. Not only that, he now has the ability to take the elements and turn them 
into the actual body and blood of Christ. That's why he's a different person. He's a different person than he was before. Protestant says, no way. This is where the other one I'm going to talk about next time came in. Another truth that was emphasized was the um, priesthood of believers. Uh, just let me sort of summarize here, because time is going. In fact, it's gone. It's 25 to 2. Gee. <laughs> really preaching here, 25 to 2. I didn't know I preached that long, boy. Um, Protestants, I, I forgot what I was saying. Protestants believed that justification was through faith and the individual alone that and works did not contribute anyway to salvation. Otherwise, it would not be grace. That's the position. That's the position most of you hold right here. You see? Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And our authority, final authority, is the Bible alone. Those are three of the five solas of the Reformation. You see? Now, and so, to Martin Luther, justification was an event, not a process. It was a legal act in which the believing sinner was declared righteous. Although he wasn't. He was declared righteous, having Christ's righteousness credited to our account. In other words, it's something that God did himself by an act, a judicial act it is called theologically, a legal act. I ain't got no money, but God gives me money. You see what I'm saying? I didn't work for it, I didn't earn it, but God says, you got all the money you want. Now what he's saying here is, and we're going to the book of Romans on this right now in Discovery, we ain't got no righteousness. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But when we receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior, the blood of Christ washes away our sin. And what happens then? God charges. He puts to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now I have everything and more that I need to spend eternity with God. I'm right with God. Not because of anything I did, but because of what Christ did. And that's why we could have the assurance of salvation. Now, those were, this, those were some of the main, two of the main things. And I'm, let me say to you now, they still remain an issue between Protestants and Roman Catholics. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed one iota. Now, there has been a little change since Vatican II. Back then, they used to call us Protestants What did you call us? Heretics? Well, that's a good word. Um, anyway, they, we had nothing to do with the church. There was no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church. But now they call us separated brethren. That inches up a little bit more. You, you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we ain't in yet. That's what they say. That's what they're talking about. We're not in yet, but we're a little closer than we were. In fact, Pope John, when he went to, uh, to the talk with the Muslims, they said that some of the Muslims are closer to heaven than the Protestants. Do you know why? Because they never had the gospel 
and rejected it. But the Protestants did. You see, but things are changing a little bit. Well, at least outwardly. But then finally, let me close with this. And I bring this in, is the priesthood of believers. This is what Martin Luther said in, his, in one of his books called The Freedom of a Christian. Every Christian is a cleric. That's what he was using. That. In other words, a person who has a right to serve God. And those who are now boastfully called popes and bishops and lords are in reality ministers, servants, and stewards who are to serve the rest in the ministry of the word servants and the servants of God. You see, he was starting the voice in, a, in, in, in an primitive way what we call the priesthood of the believers. And we're going to talk about this because even some Christians have the wrong idea what the priesthood of believer is and the, being a priest, you see. Being a priest doesn't mean only that I can go directly to him, but it also means that I can represent God to others. I can share the gospel. I can give you spiritual help when you need it. And we're going to see that when we come to 1 Corinthians 11, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. You see? And so the priest, and the reason why you could sing today is because of this doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. That's why they didn't allow him to sing. But you all can offer nothing to God. Only the cleric, only the priest's man who's been changed from an ordinary man into a whatever. He's the only ones who can do it. That's why you have all of the singing, the chanting. That's why I try to demonstrate today, if you'd come to the Lord's Supper back before 1517, all you do is stand there and listen to a language you couldn't understand. Couldn't sing. But the Reformation has given us that privilege, that joy, to be able to come here, to take this bread, to take this cup, and to be able to sing praises unto our God. It was because of the Reformation that we are experiencing that today. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, don't be unaware, don't be ignorant of the history of God's people. He's given it to us to help us to live holy lives. We need to know the Old Testament for sure. Coming back to that next time, but we also need to know the history of God's people, the people who died so that we could have the freedom we have today. That's the lesson. One of the lessons we have. A lesson to commitment to the word of God. Would you hold the word dear? Would you hold your freedom to worship dear? If you do, you should thank God every day for the saints who have gone before who has made it possible. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to learn, not only from the written text, but from the history of your people. And from the Reformation especially, Father, may we get the lesson that is being taught here of our need to be committed to the truth of the word of God and committed to the fact that faith Salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, and the gospel is only found in the word of God. And all of God's people said, Amen.